0: What's up, Felony Friday listeners? Before we start the show today, I wanted to let you know of a way that you can support the show and help to spread the message of liberty. You can do this by visiting IgniteLiberty.us and ordering a Make Liberty Great Again hat or shirt. That's right. We now have men's and women's shirts, Make Liberty Great Again shirts, and they are in more colors than I can even count. Visit IgniteLiberty.us and get yours today. Make sure to enter promo code LIBERTY at checkout for 10% off your order. That's IgniteLiberty.us. Thanks, and I hope you enjoyed today's show.
1: Welcome to Philly Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt.
0: Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to your favorite weekly Friday show, Felony Friday, right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Every week here on Felony Friday, we focus on a different aspect of the critically broken criminal justice system. And today is no different. For this episode, actually for the next two episodes, this is part one of a two-part series that I did with Pete Hendrickson, where we're going to be focusing on the income tax As you know, libertarians call taxation theft, and taxation is theft. But my guest today, Pete Hendrickson, is going to explain exactly how the federal government has fleeced the people for so long with the income tax. In the first part of this two-part episode, Pete is going to talk about the entire history of the income tax, and he's going to explain how it's been misinterpreted, and he's going to tell you how he has taught so many others to actually get money back from their taxes, get their income taxes returned to them, and to not have to pay them to the federal government. And be sure to tune in next week. Pete is going to explain how the federal government has taken his wife as really a political prisoner, a political captive for the work he has done exposing the injustice of the income tax and showing people how they can get out of paying it. So you don't want to miss that. Be sure to tune in next week for part two. Now, this is episode number 42 of Felony Friday. So that means you can find the show notes with links and notes for everything that we're going to talk about on today's show at lionsofliberty.com FF42. My guest today is Pete Hendrickson. Pete is a fascinating guy who champions a controversial method to help people recover income tax withholding from both the federal and state governments. He is the author of the book, Crack the Code, and he publishes articles and success stories of people who have cracked the code at LostHorizons.com. In his book, Pete delves into the history and statutes and case law behind the tax code to reveal a startling and liberating secrets that have helped those who have followed his advice to recover more than $12 tax dollars. Now, Pete's success cracking the code has gained the attention of the federal government, I'm assuming, because it appears that the feds have targeted his wife, Doreen. She's been ordered to lie and swear falsely that a government-prepared document was true, which she believed was not. So we'll get into that, and we'll talk with Pete about all that stuff. But first, let me introduce Pete Hendrickson. Pete, welcome to Felony Friday.
1: Well, thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's
0: great to have you here, Pete, and there's so much to cover. As uh, I was just discussing with you in a little pre-show chat there with the the tax code, I feel like I'm a little out of my element, but you promised me that that'll change quickly during this podcast, so I'm looking forward to that. But before we get started actually talking about the, the tax code and talking about your book and talking about how these people, all of these people have recovered money from the federal government and from state governments... I thought maybe we'll start out just where you you could share how you first got interested in the tax code and tax law and the income tax.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Before I I do, though, I want to update something. You mentioned $12 million in recovered uh, amounts uh, by people who have become educated by uh, studying my research. Uh, That number is actually in the billions of dollars now. And hundreds of thousands of complete refunds have been recovered by uh, Americans across the country over the course of 13 years and counting from the federal government and 34 state governments. So it's um, it's a very large thing, which is one of the reasons why the uh, the feds are, are so intensely interested in suppressing my research. I became interested in the subject in 1976, actually, during the uh, bicentennial celebration, uh, during which I, uh, as a young man, I studied the Constitution and founding documents a little more thoroughly than I'd had occasion to in the past and uh, noticed in uh, reading through the taxing rules in the United States Constitution uh, and in observing the effective reality of the income tax as uh, administered in regard to most people, there seemed to be a disconnect there because the taxing rules in the Constitution uh, prohibit Capitations and other direct taxes except by the apportionment rule, which which is the distribution of a a predetermined uh, overall aggregate amount of tax uh, amongst the state governments who are then the ones responsible for remitting the uh, tax money. There is no uh, actual federal provision allowing for a direct reach of the federal government into the pockets of any citizen. So seeing that rule, which is uh, still standing today, it's, it's never been changed, it wasn't changed by the 16th Amendment or anything else, and yet seeing the income tax as most Americans experience it, it seemed that there was something wrong, uh, something either I was not understanding or maybe it was just a blatant, you know, outright unconstitutional, you know, rogue government action. And, and so I began looking into the subject at that time and, and continued to do so for many years without any great success until uh, the turn of the 21st century, at which point the tax law and the tax code became available in a digital format. It became possible to actually study the three and a half million words of the tax code, as it was at that time, with a computer, and uh, something that no one had previously been able to do. And it made a huge, huge difference in one's ability to actually you know, parse it all out and uh, figure it all out. And that's what I did.
0: So can I just jump in real quick? So was there a particular, you're talking about how things change with technology, you were able to actually search the tax code. Was there a particular event that happened that you were searching the tax code and and you realized something, uh, an epiphany or
1: something like that? There was an event, actually. Throughout the the 1990s and, and into the early 2000s, I had been filing tax returns, but with a disclaimer Added to the perjury statement, the jurat on the uh, tax returns to to the effect of uh, that I was not endorsing the application of the term income to the amounts that I was reporting on the returns. And these returns were accepted by the IRS without any comment or complaint for many years. But for the the return filed for the year 2000, I got back a strange notice from the IRS that, uh, well, it was strange at the time. It said that the IRS was unable to process the return without my endorsing the characterization of those earnings as income. And that little, little light bulb, it, it uh, I had to ask myself, why would that matter to them? If my earnings qualified for the tax, it wouldn't matter whether I said they did or I said they didn't or anything. I mean, they either do or they don't. And yet they insisted that I declare them to be income subject to the reporting and tax. And uh, and so I, as I said that light bulb went off. That light bulb told me that or was the realization that the terms involved income in particular must have a special meaning must have a uh, some particular legal meaning and this is something that I had been I hadn't gleaned from anything that I'd seen in the past and so at that point I resumed a detailed study of the tax and the tax law and at that point had the benefit of the uh, digitalization of the material and so was able to actually start looking up definitions and following the trails that those statutory definitions, of which there are many, as it turns out, in, in the tax law, the trails that they led down in, and uh, learned that, in fact, the, the tax is a, uh, a limited uh, tax. It, it has limited application. It does only apply to a particular subclass of earnings that qualify under the uh, quote mark bracketed term income, uh, which goes under a number of different labels. Uh, in. Uh, tax law, but that all falls under the rubric of uh, "quote unquote" income, and uh, and in fact, the the tax is, as the Supreme Court actually said many times, and you know, this was something I was familiar with, but uh, prior to the digitalization of the code, but hadn't been able to really put into perspective and gain the full meaning of it. It's an excise tax. It's a it's a piece of the action tax, which is to say, a, an indirect tax that falls on activities. And, uh, and events. and uh,
0: What does that mean being, what does actually excise tax mean?
1: Here's the difference between an indirect and a direct tax. Indirect taxes, are excises or indirect taxes. A direct tax is a tax that the uh, application of which is initiated at the will of the taxing authority. In other words, the government simply says, you no, a tax. And it doesn't matter what you did, you don't have to do anything to make that happen. It's just a, it's a direct tax. A directive or a direct application of that.
0: So it wouldn't matter how much money you've made in a given year?
1: Well, the government could, you know, if it were a direct tax, the government could use its own device, its own uh, calculation device or application device to figure out you know, what it was going to tax and how it was going to determine it. But the point is that nothing you did would be an initiating factor. There wouldn't be any reliance on you having made a choice in order for uh, that tax to come to be. An indirect tax requires the individual being to actually have done some initiating thing voluntarily. An indirect uh, excise, for instance, you know, one of the ones that we're all familiar with uh, are things like the excises on gasoline consumption. Um, you have to choose to buy gasoline for that tax to to come to be. Mm-hmm. It is never applied in the sense that the government sends you an invoice saying uh, we're we're charging you a gas tax, anticipating that you're going to you know, use X amount of gas during the course of the year. Or so here's your bill, you know, send us a check.
0: Yeah, there's no there's no withholding of gasoline tax. They don't expect...
1: Withholding is actually a component of the income excise. And it's, it's an, in anticipation of the possibility that one will have done the initiating things, causing the tax to apply. So again, the income tax is, in fact, an excise. It requires the choice of an individual to engage in a taxable activity, in order for the tax liability to arise. And the specifics of the of what is taxed under the income tax, uh, basically the exploitation of or, or simple use, uh, exploitation is kind of a loaded term, but the use of uh, government privilege, federal, federal privilege. It's as simple as that. It's a tax that was initiated in 1862. Uh, that is the same tax that we still have today, the 1862 uh, enactment. It is broadly misapplied today. It has been for about 75 years. Since about the middle of the 1940s, or earlier years actually, 1943 was really sort of a watershed year uh, when we uh, as a nation switched from broad understanding of the tax and a a proper confinement of the tax to its uh, actual uh, limited class of activities to a subterfuge under which activities that don't actually qualify for the tax are made to appear as though they do. And there's an elaborate structure that has been put into place starting in, in that period, in the in the early 1940s, that causes a, a series of legal presumptions to come into play and be exploitable by taxing authorities, which are, are happy to make use of the uh, of the faulty indicators that people actually inadvertently cooperate in creating for themselves or against themselves. Uh, And that's the reason why uh, prior to 1943, uh, the average tax return completion rate among all American households was below 9%. And uh, subsequent to 1943, it was in the 90 percentile uh, numbers and has stayed there ever since.
0: Did that have to do with enforcement as well? Was it?
1: No, not at all. It was not an enforcement issue. Uh, What actually happened is that in 1943, uh, withholding was resumed. It had gone dormant in 1916. It had been a factor in the tax from the beginning in 1862 and continued up through 1916. But in 1916, it was, uh, or for the 1917 year, it was dropped for a period of time. And then in 1943, it was resumed with the current Tax Payment Act of 1943. And when it was, there was an exploitive process. The, The tax involves a lot of customized, statutorily defined terms. I mentioned that earlier. Among them are terms like wages, employee, employment, employer, trader, business, uh, self employment, income. All of these things are actually custom defined terms uh, in tax law. They do not have their common you know, dictionary definitions at all. Uh, they have statutory definitions, and a statutory definition actually replaces entirely any meaning that, the, that what had been a commonly understood word becomes a term in law. And uh, and it only has the meaning that the statute uh, that statutory definition provides for it. Um, all those things became custom defined in tax law, but the uh, American people were not uh, widely made privy to that information. And in 1943, with the current Tax Payment Act, the government simply uh, began sending out uh, reporting uh, forms to uh, businesses around the country, instructing them to report. The wages paid to their employees and and, and those terms uh, in the the documents that were submitted uh, to these companies had the statutory definitions, not common definitions. But those statutory definitions were not provided with these with these documents. And so, as odd as it may sound, at that point, which was, by the way, let's remember, in the in the midst of World War II, a time when you know people were saving bacon fat to you know support the war effort. And uh, doing all manner of things that you know s- would sound pretty strange to uh, to those of us that have not had to live through that kind of national project. We had just come out of, or were coming out of, uh, more than a decade of depression in which people had learned a different kind of relationship with with government uh, than had been true in the past, and uh, and hopefully is becoming less true today.
0: Different relationship with government, meaning a more of a reliance on government and yes, seeing, it, much. seeing it as a as a good institution. Which I agree with you. That is no longer the case today, and I think that is waning.
1: Yeah, happily, it's waning. But at that time, in in the early nineteen forties, this was very much uh, in its ascendancy. You know, radio as a, a means of mass communication and therefore uh, as a propaganda m- method was, you know, in its heyday and was widely being used by government for that purpose. The Disney Corporation was producing uh, shorts, you know, that preceded every movie that people saw in the the cinemas with material encouraging this attitude and in particular about the tax, by the way, about the income tax and the victory tax and so forth. You know, taxes to beat the axis was like one of the uh, catch lines in some of the stuff that Donald Duck was quacking into everyone's heads and uh, the first generation of americans uh, the first broad scale generation of americans uh, that had been taught in government schools uh, were now you know in the in their voting age at that point a lot of things came together and there had been by the way at the same time from the time of the passage of the uh, or adoption of the 16th amendment in 1913 there had been a, a very concerted effort on the part of progressives to Confuse the understanding of the average American about the the meaning and effect of the Sixteenth Amendment, which was actually nothing but a loophole closing mechanism. The authorities on this are perfectly clear. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled on it many many times. Congress publishes documents explaining that the insignificant, relative insignificance of the Sixteenth Amendment, and yet most Americans think of it as the income tax amendment, as the you know the thing that initiated the income tax. Not at all the case. Uh, there's just been a lot of disinformation. And there was a there was a lot of misunderstanding at that time in the 40s when this exploitation took place and took root and really has kind of stayed entrenched ever since. In
0: 1913, the passage of the 16th Amendment, I mean, that's what I thought. I think of it as the income tax amendment. And most people I come across, I think everyone I come across thinks of it that way to my knowledge. So what really changed, I guess, and what what was the tax law prior to that?
1: All right. The tax law prior to that is the same law we have today. The, in fact, the a, a very, very substantial portion of our current tax code was written prior to 1913. Congress publishes a derivation table, in fact, that shows what laws are being reflected in each section of tax code. And anyone is welcome to browse that and discover that uh, certainly at least 40% of current law was written between 1862 and 1868 and a smattering of the rest between those years and 1894 by no means was the tax initiated in 1913. In fact, what the 16th Amendment was about was uh, in 1894 when the income tax was being revived by the Cleveland administration uh, in order to begin capturing a uh, portion of the uh, profits being enjoyed by the uh, the railroad uh, corporations, which were uh, Huge affairs at that time, and had been engaging in a in a lot of uh, corrupt activity in Washington, suborning uh, many many congressmen, and, and basically, you know, there was the robber baron class in a lot of ways. In 1894, Cleveland administration revived the income tax; it had been dormant for a number of years at that point. And uh, a stockholder in uh, Farmers Loan and Trust, which was which is now Citibank, uh, by the way, uh, a fellow named Pollock. Uh, took Farmer's Loan and Trust to court, attempting to enjoin it from paying the tax prior to distributing dividends, uh, of which he was going to claim some. And he argued that the application of the tax to Farmer's Loan and Trust, to the profits of Farmer's Loan and Trust, would constitute a tax on his stock. And his stock was personal property. And because this was true in that case, and in that particular application, the application of the tax would not function as an excise, as it was designed to do, and as it is allowed to do without apportionment, but instead would function as a property tax. Uh, his reasoning was that to tax the fruit, the dividends, is to tax the tree, the stock, the personal property of the stock, and that therefore it required apportionment because it was a uh, property tax. is a direct tax, has always been recognized as a direct tax, uh, and the Supreme Court bought this theory. And, uh, and struck down 10 sections of the 1894 revival of the 1862 income tax. It said that the application of the tax to dividends and rent from real estate both fell under the mantle of this reasoning, causing the tax application in those cases and those, to those particular things to become a property tax in effect and therefore to require apportionment. The 16th Amendment Was eventually adopted to overrule the Supreme Court's ruling in Pollock versus Farmers Loan Trust. It says that the tax can be applied without regard to the source of the gains. uh, The source being the dividends or the or the real estate, and that's all it did. It's just a loophole closer, but it's an important loophole closer because the whole purpose of the tax always has been to tax the private profits of those gaining benefits from public resources. And and that's what, in fact, in the case of the Pollock, Pollock's dividends, that's what was going on. Uh, Farmers Loan Trust was invested in national railroads, which the Supreme Court, Supreme Court uh, deemed uh, national instrumentalities. Uh, they were, from their inception, uh, highly subsidized affairs and uh, considered to be effectively the property of the federal government or the consequence of a privilege granted by federal government.
0: So the spirit of the law, and correct me if I'm wrong, is really for for those companies or businesses that would take on the government subsidies.
1: Yes, government subsidies or, or make use of, of government privilege in any other respect. You know, investors in in government corporations, federal federally controlled corporations, it includes the federal workforce, office holders, you know, things like the Federal Reserve Bank system, people uh, engaging in mining and, and timbering on federal land, the armaments industry, a lot of different things, but it doesn't apply to, you know, the guy that owns the service station on the corner, or the local Seven Eleven, or you know, people working, in, you know, for a private business of any kind, or investors in uh, non-federally controlled corporations. So. You know, amongst the 330 million people in in America, there there may be 30 million people that actually receive taxable amounts of what qualifies as income, quote unquote, as it is meant in the law, but the other 300 million don't.
0: So, is is that at the core of what your book Crack Dakota is about, and is that how you you guide people to determine what between these different types of income, what is earned off of public, you know, public earnings or subsidies, and
1: yeah, the, the Cracking the Code is, and I want to give the full title, by the way, it's Cracking the Code, The Fascinating Truth About Taxation in America. And I, I say it that way because there are actually a lot of books out there, as it turns out, with the title "cracking" and the main title of Cracking the Code. And so I, I find it necessary to uh, be clear about the entire title, otherwise people mistake my book for others. But Cracking the Code is divided into three parts. Uh, the first part provides the history uh, of the tax and, and explains what the tax actually falls on. The second part uh, explains how conventional non-taxable activities and the earnings and receipts that that come from them are made to appear as though they are federally privileged in their character, largely because of the uh, creation of tax reporting form documents by payers. And that's the thing that happened. That was the perfect storm thing that happened in the early 1940s when all these businesses across the country were sent forms asking them to report payments made to their employees or contractors uh, you know, and so forth. And those companies all did it. Yeah, they didn't know what they were doing, and they still don't know what they're doing. As a matter of fact, they continue to produce these information returns, quote-unquote, which are known to most people as W-2s, 1099s, K-1s. Any of those forms are information returns exclusively intended for the reporting of federally connected payments, which are is become the habit of people in this country to fill out one of those forms every time they make any kind of payment. They don't know that there is a, a legal characterization that is associated with those reports. And so they, they make them about anybody. And of course the recipient of the report, you know the recipient of the of the payments who get copied on these reports when they get made They don't know the meaning of these reports either. And they don't understand, and it is kept from most people, that to transcribe the numbers that appear on these forms onto a 1040 and to attach the form itself to the 1040 and sign it at the bottom of the form under penalty of perjury as being true, complete, and correct to the best of one's knowledge and ability is to, or knowledge and belief, is to declare legally and make legally effective the characterization of or presumption of those payments as having been from taxable activities, something that the tax authorities, the IRS and the state governments are delighted to accept and work from and, you know, use as a basis for claiming uh, liabilities against those individuals. And that's just what they do. And that's how it is that the tax is broadly misapplied in this country today. That's what part two of Cracking the Code explains. And it also explains what it is that Congress has provided for people to extricate themselves from this process and to correct errors of this kind that have been made in the past, back a certain distance. You can only go back a little ways, unfortunately. but and then the third part of cracking the code explains, or does, you know it offers my best expression of why it's so important that Americans, Come to understand this information and and act on it. The founders set the country up in a certain very specific fashion, and they they put the taxing clauses in the Constitution with very very particular purposes and a great deal of import. In fact, the taxing limitations, limitations on capitations and direct taxes, are in the Constitution in two different places. It's the only thing that's in the Constitution twice. And as any student of American history, revolutionary history in particular, or our political history. Is aware taxation was a really, really big issue. It was recognized as a paramount issue to the colonists and the the founders, and it it was to the framers as well. And uh, they knew that the difference between freedom and tyranny is, in very large measure, the control of resources. And so they set things up in order to ensure that individual Americans would retain the power of control over their own resources over how much of their resources were devoted to public use and how much of it stayed in their own private hands. And this was one of the key mechanisms that was put in place to ensure that that power would remain with individuals. The founders and framers were very big fans of diffusion of power, they didn't like centralized power, they recognized the threat that it represents, they were big on diffusion of power. This was one of the key methods that was deployed to keep power diffused. In America. And unfortunately, over the past 75 years, since the misapplication of the tax began, we have seen a huge aggregation of power into the central state, into Washington for the most part. In fact, if you look at a chart of the GDP consumption of government over the course of our entire history, it's basically a hockey stick. It's a flat line from 1787 up through 1943 a remarkably flat line, has a couple of little spikes. There's a little spike during the 1860s, the early 1860s, and there's a little spike during the 19-teens in World War One, And then in 1943, the blade of the hockey stick starts, and, it, and we see a rise at about a 65% incline, and it has, hasn't stopped since. It really is a frightening thing to look at, actually.
0: Yeah, I mean, imagine the uh, how much has been wasted in that, in sheer government waste. Imagine how much more prosperity we would have today if they hadn't been wasted. It's really sickening.
1: Absolutely, yes, it is, as you say, sickening. Anyway, so that's the the truth about the income tax in a nutshell. When I wrote my first book, Cracking the Code, in in 2003, it began a process, uh, now 13 years running, whereby more and more Americans uh, learned the truth about the tax and have been reclaiming their property. As I said earlier, um, it now the reclaimed total uh, now is in the billions of dollars, and the number of refunds that have been reclaimed through the, the proper application of tax law is in the hundreds of thousands. I have about 1,200 examples posted on my website, lostrisons.com. Most of them complete in their documentation showing you know the filing that was made, the and the the consequence, and in, in a number of cases, uh, because the government does not like this at all, there have been most people are, are treated, you know, with complete uh, you know, law binding behavior by the uh, by the government they're dealing with. But but some number over the years have not been, and and I have a, a number of instances posted in which there was uh, resistance.
0: Can you talk about one of those instances where there's been resistance? Oh, the,
1: one of the more recent ones that I posted was uh, a doctor in Pennsylvania that. Uh, that was being hammered for a claim the IRS was making of $120,000 of liability for, I think it was 2013. And, uh, and he stuck to his guns. And it actually took around a year and a half of uh, him standing his ground and uh, just increasingly obnoxious harassment by the IRS attempting to uh, cause him to back down before the government finally gave up and gave him his Sorry for the inconvenience and, you know, have a nice day. Notice on all of it.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of curious because you do hear with, you know, insurance companies. If you make a claim against an insurance company, a lot of the times immediately they'll deny the claim. It's like part of their procedure. And mm-hmm. I guess that's not what the government does in these instances. That A lot of the times you'll get you'll be able to reclaim your money without any pushback.
1: Yeah, the vast majority of times. The vast majority of occasions there's nothing at all. It's simply, you know, inside of six or eight weeks the check shows up in your mailbox. And by the way, I would like people listening to know that this is not just nominal, you know, federal income tax uh, withheld or paid in. This includes social security and Medicare tax as well, uh, all of which is just income tax under its own little special labels. I mentioned earlier that uh, that there are a number of special labels uh, deployed within the subclass of the income, quote unquote. You know, income is sort of the the umbrella term for any activity that is uh, taxable uh, under this, this particular tax, but it goes under a number of different labels. Social Security tax being one of the Medicare taxes, another, there is a subclass of the, the taxed activities and the, and it's important, I guess, to draw this, uh, make this point as well. People confuse, because the term income has a common meaning in the, you know the dictionary, it refers to the receipts themselves. And so we tend to think of the income tax as a tax on the money. But it actually isn't. It's, it's it's tax on the activity that produces the money and the volume of the activity is measured by the amount of money that gets produced. And because of that linkage or because of that formulation, there's a shorthand that's deployed where we just refer to the money itself that is measuring the amount of taxable activity that takes place. We refer to that as income. And this is a, a shorthand that is exploited by the taxing authorities to confuse people's understanding of what it is that's being taxed. You can see how that would work. It comes to appear that the tax is just on the money itself, and that leads to the conclusion that the tax falls on making money. You know, if you have money come in, then it's tax. It's it's income in the context of the tax, but that's not actually the case. So it's an important thing for people to keep in mind when dealing with the subject. I'm going to have to. You know trust that people will understand as we go forward in this conversation that when I say income, I am really referring to the activity that produces it, but it also uh, you know functions as that shorthand, and that the amount of that activity is measured by the gains that are produced from it. So we see, for instance, some part of that the taxable activity being measured by what is statutorily defined as wages. A certain kind of taxable activity is remunerated with what is called wages, and that has quote marks around it. And it is wages as defined in tax law, which is a particular kind of payment made to a particular type of, you know, in re- regard to a particular type of activity. Same thing with self-employment income and other many others, all of which are detailed in, in Cracking the Code.
0: This concludes part one of my interview with Pete Hendrickson. Now, I'll be saving my comments on the income tax and taxation in general for the conclusion of next week's episode, so be sure to check back for that. But in the meantime, please consider subscribing to the Lions of Liberty podcast on iTunes or through whatever Your favorite podcasting app is. This will guarantee, obviously, that next Friday's show will end up in your podcast feed as well as our Monday and Wednesday shows. And I know next Monday's show is going to be our debate reaction show. It was a crazy debate last week, and you aren't going to want to miss the analysis that we have. It's always a fun time, so be sure to check that out. Now, if this is your first time listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast or your first time listening to Felony Friday, please consider checking out the Felony Friday archive at FelonyFriday.com. Now, there's been some incredible guests over the last 10 months of this show since we kicked off this show in January of this year. So please take some time, check back through the episodes and pick out any ones that uh, that catch your eye or just pick out any ones that you've missed or listen to them all again if you want to. That would be outstanding and I would really appreciate it. That's it for today, guys. That's it for the show today. As always, thank you for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.